Well, good evening, everyone. You've got to ask yourself, what's it all been for? Uh, last week, we were looking at Yahweh's rescue of Israel out of Egypt, this incredible display of the power and judgment and salvation of God. We had frogs and flies. We had darkness and boils. We had blood and death, this astounding array of plagues and signs and wonders. You've got the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptian army. And so Israel is saved. But what's it all for? You can imagine the Israelites, can't you, in the excitement of the moment, seeing the the Egyptian army drowned, but them saved, having just walked through the Red Sea. But as the moment and the euphoria dies down and they turn their eyes away from the settling waters of the Red Sea, and as they literally look forward to where they've come to, they're probably wondering, what's it all for? Because where do they find themselves but in the hot, sparse, unforgiving desert? Sure, Yahweh's done amazing things to get them out of Egypt, but is it just a case of out of the frying pan and into the fire? What's it all been for? Well, this week we begin to find out. And it's all got to do with Yahweh rescuing Israel so that they would be his people. Not Pharaoh's anymore, his And along the way, Yahweh is going to keep making himself more and more known to his people. But in our chapters this evening, the big thing they need to know is this, that Yahweh is now their God. And it's what God is saying to us as well. This evening, our Heavenly Father, he's speaking to us. He's reminding us that in Christ, he has made us his own. He's our God and we're his people. And so we have the privilege and the responsibility of obeying him in everything so that others might know him too. Let's have a look. Uh, We're looking at chapters 19 all the way through to 24 this evening. Uh, Israel's been out of Egypt for just three months. Yahweh's led them to the mountain where he's going to speak with them. He's going to famously give Israel his law, the the Ten Commandments. And then for the next three chapters, he's going to keep on giving them more and more laws, so many different ways to obey him because now they belong to him. But before it all starts, in just the first six verses of chapter 19, Yahweh reminds his people of the rich privilege they have in being his people and the goodness of why they are to obey him. These first six verses set the whole thing up. And there's two things that Israel had to understand about the privilege of being the people of Yahweh. And the first is that they know the grace of God. Come and have a look at with me. Chapter 19, verse 3. After three months, as I said, they've, they've arrived at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Moses, as Israel's representative, he goes up to God and Yahweh speaks to Moses from the mountain. Verse 3. Then Moses went up to God. And the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Before Yahweh gives Israel his laws, the first thing he wants them to remember is that he has already saved them and so they belong to him already. He's already rescued them. You saw what I did to Egypt. I carried you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself. 
obeying God's laws, that's not going to make Israel God's people. They already are. Yahweh's already saved them and brought them to himself. They know the grace of God in him making them his own. And that's just like you and me, isn't it? We wonderfully know the grace of God. Jesus Christ even died in our place for our sins. By his death, we have already been made into the children of God. We do not obey the Lord Jesus in order to win a place among God's people. No, our obedience to God is for a completely different reason. Just like it was for Israel. Because they weren't just rescued by Yahweh, it's that Yahweh considers Israel to be his treasure. That even though Yahweh, even though he owns all the earth, Israel would be especially his own. It's just like with uh, King David when he was getting things ready to build the temple. Let me quickly tell you the story. David was king in Israel, and so in a sense he owned all the nation's wealth. He could do what he liked with it and He gave much of it to the project of building the temple. But out of all that David owned as the king of Israel, he had a personal treasure store that was especially his own. And out of his own personal possessions, he gave 100 tons of gold and 240 tons of silver towards the building of the temple. Out of everything that he owned since he was king, these things came from his own treasured possessions. And out of everything that God owns since he's God, though he owns all the nations, all the peoples, all the lands, out of everything, Israel are to be his own treasured possession. Have a look at verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. To be Yahweh's treasured possession was for Israel to be his priests. God had already made them his people. He was also going to make them his priests. And they would be his priests if they obeyed him fully. Now, a priest's job back then was to relate God to people and to relate people to God. It was like a go-between. Uh, So if you and I were having an argument, uh, but we have a mutual friend who comes and helps us to get back together again. In the Old Testament, a priest brought God and people together. And Israel, as a nation, if they would obey Yahweh as a nation, they'd be his priests to the world. They would be bringing people to God as their obedience attracted the nation's to Yahweh. By the way that they lived, Israel had the privilege of making God known to the rest of the world. And again, that's true of you and I. We've been graciously made into the people of God by the death of Christ so that now in our lives of obedience to him, we display the, the goodness and the greatness of God out of all that God has made and out of all that God owns, our little lives can make the Lord and God of the universe known to the world. It is a remarkable privilege that God has given us to be his people. But back to Israel, and how would their obedience attract the nations to Yahweh? How would their lives make Yahweh known to the world around them? Well, to see that, we'd have to see what it looked like for them to obey Yahweh, and we are going to get to that. 
But before they're given the details of the law, God comes to Israel. He descends towards them to show them yet again that he is God. In a frightening display, Yahweh makes it clear to Israel that he's he's not one to be messed with, that he is in charge, that he does wonderfully rule over his people. And so in chapter 19, God gets the people ready to meet with him on the mountain. And uh, work with me. I know it's Sunday night, but work with me. Imagine, let's, let's imagine that we are the people of Israel. Let's put ourselves in their shoes. And so we're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And Moses comes to us and he, and he says that Yahweh is going to come and speak with us on the mountain, which means that we have to purify ourselves for two days. And that when it does come time for us to approach the mountain, Yahweh says that if any one of us does touch the mountain, we'll die. So we all go and we purify ourselves for two days. And on the third day, Yahweh comes. And let's read and see what happens next. Chapter 19, verse 16. Picture the scene. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. It's a terrifying scene. The noise of the thunder and the lightning and the trumpets, the sight of the lightning and the smoke, the smell with everything just getting louder and louder. Yahweh descends to the top of the mountain in fire and calls Moses to come and join him. Lucky Moses. And so Moses goes up. And in verses 21 to 24, Yahweh tells him, make sure that no one comes up the mountain. So in verse 25, Moses goes back down the mountain. And he makes sure that no one will approach the mountain. And with Moses and all the people at the foot of the mountain, acknowledging Yahweh's right to rule, they now hear his commandments that he rule over them by his law. Chapter 20. Verse 1, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And what follows is the rest of the famous Ten Commandments. The ten words that are to govern Israel's life. Ten laws that would shape them as the people of Yahweh. No other gods. No idolatry, no blasphemy. Remember the Sabbath, honour your father and mother, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no false testimony, no coveting. And after hearing the terrifying voice of God speaking out these Ten Commandments, Israel, they've had enough. Chapter 20, verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet, 
and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. For Israel and for us, the lesson is clear. Know your God, that he is God and is your God. And so the people remain at the bottom of the mountain. Moses goes up to listen to Yahweh. And what comes next in chapters 21 to 23 is God giving more laws to Moses, fleshing out what the Ten Commandments mean. Because the Ten Commandments, they're they're general principles for Israel to live by. They're quite general in nature, but the specifics of how to live it out day to day, well, chapters 21 to 23 are the beginning of God giving them some direction. So, for example, come across with me to chapter 21 and verse 18. Because one of the commandments, one of the Ten Commandments, was do not murder. But what if you have a fight with someone and one of them gets injured but they don't die? So it wasn't murder, but it wasn't good. What do you do then? Chapter 21, verse 18. If men quarrel and one hits the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to bed... The one who struck the blow will not be held responsible if the other gets up and walks around outside with his staff. However, he must pay the injured man for his loss of time and see that he is completely healed. We'll come across now to chapter 22. Uh, One of the ten words was do not steal, but what if someone does? What then? Chapter 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Or as a final example, now come across to chapter 23 and verse 4. Because one of the Ten Commandments was, don't covet your neighbor's ox. But what if I just come across an ox wandering about? Can I take it then? Well, chapter 23, verse 4. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. Can you see how these laws flesh out the Ten Commandments in everyday life for the Israelites? This is what Israel was to live by. But more importantly, can you see what a great life Yahweh was calling Israel to. Here we have a whole nation, if they would obey, not living in hatred or jealousy or strife or selfishness, but a nation consistently looking after each other, even helping your enemy with his overloaded donkey, making sure injured parties are compensated. Marriages are honoured. There's provision for the poor. You don't exploit the vulnerable. Every single part of their lives wonderfully won over to the ways of Yahweh. It's no wonder, really, back in chapter 19, that God said that if they would fully obey him, they would make him known to the world because his laws are fantastic. The nations around them would look in on Israel and marvel and want to be a part of it. It's not unlike the refugees and asylum seekers 
hearing about Australia today and they hear of our peace and our stability and our freedoms and they desperately want to be included among us. The nations were meant to be able to look in on Israel and want to be included among them. Wanting to have Israel's God as their God. Wanting to become a part of Israel. The obedience of God's people was to make Yahweh known to the nations. Which is what our lives it will be like today. Through Jesus Christ, by his spirit, our lives have been wonderfully won over to him. And the world should look in on our lives and marvel and want to be a part of it and want to know our God. Back in Exodus and in chapter 24, we see that Israel is eager to be obedient. They're on board with this. They say they would love to do everything that Yahweh commands. So have a look. Chapter 24, verse 3. Moses has been up on the mountain with God. He's received this first section of God's laws. And so he now goes back down to the people to tell them everything that Yahweh's told him. So verse 3. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord has said. Now come down to verse 7. Moses just told Israel all the laws so far. They've agreed to obey everything. Moses then writes all the laws down. And the next day, he reads it out to them again. Verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Twice Moses gives Israel Yahweh's laws so far and both times they heartily agree to do everything that Yahweh commands. It's a wonderful sentiment. It's a terrific start. But it was all huff and no puff. It was all talk and no action. In a couple of weeks we're going to see Israel tragically get it wrong while Moses is back up again on the mountain with God. And and in their history, in the Old Testament... Israel was just one long train wreck of rebellion and sin and idolatry and oppression and injustice. And so instead of making Yahweh known to the nations, they became a laughing stock to the nations, dragging Yahweh's name through the mud while they were at it. And they were at it for centuries. They said they'd be obedient, but they didn't do it. And so these pages of privilege and anticipation are left scrumpled up unfulfilled until eventually there came one Israelite who finally pulled it off what Israel could only say Jesus Christ did Jesus was perfectly obedient to God as Israel never was Christ was what Israel was always meant to be But the remarkable teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus wasn't obedient to the Father just for himself. He was obedient for us as well. Just like Israel could never obey God fully, neither can we. And so Jesus came and lived the perfectly obedient life for us and then swapped his obedience for our disobedience and then died for us to deal with our disobedience. And amazing as this is, it gets even better because the Lord Jesus also gives his spirit to his forgiven people 
And he gives us his spirit so that we can obey him. The tragedy of God's people dragging his name through the mud by their disobedience and godlessness, those days should be a thing of the past. I know we won't be perfect until the new creation. We still struggle against sin, but that's just it. We can struggle now. God hasn't left us alone with just our sinful natures. He's given us his spirit. He's given us new hearts that want to obey him. And so by the spirit of God, we can live the obedient, good, God-honoring lives we've been called to. This is wonderful news. And it just keeps getting better. Because as good as God's law is, its time has come and gone. Jesus came and he fulfilled it. We're not even Israelites anyway. And so in our obedience to God, we're not restricted to the 613 laws of the Old Testament. We now live in the freedom of the Spirit. To surrender every aspect of our hearts and minds and wills in glad obedience to God. Can you see the anticipation that this gives to our every waking moment? That in absolutely everything, God's spirit is right here with us, moving us to honour and obey our heavenly father. So that when people look at our lives, they'll want a piece of it. They'll be drawn to the God who has saved us and rules us. So in the way that you speak to your neighbour, in how you respect your boss, in how you speak to your children, in the way you talk about our governments, how you talk about Aboriginal people, how you respond to suffering, how you greet people on the phone, in your generosity to the people who work for you, in the type of jokes you tell, in the type of jokes you laugh at, in the careful use of your tongue, in absolutely everything, Know your God, that he is your God. And our privilege is that at all times, God's spirit is right here with us, moving us to honour and obey our heavenly father. So that when people look at our lives, they'll be drawn to the God who has saved us and who wonderfully rules over us, that they too might know him as their God as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have saved us. Thank you that you have brought us to yourself through the death of your Son and that you've done all that for us. And we thank you that as your people you have given us your Spirit that we might genuinely obey you in everything. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would strip away our sin. He would enable us to put to death whatever belongs to our sinful natures. And that, Father, it would be our ever-increasing delight to be obedient to you. And, Father, we ask that as we live these spirit-filled, obedient lives, the world around us would look at us and marvel and they would want to know you and we could speak to them of your son 
that together we might honour you with every fibre of our being. And we pray it all for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.